Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 64. Oh yeah, we still talking about nets. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Chanel. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we were talking mostly about scoop nets for Kehe, Kahawai and Wareho. This time we're going to talk more about nets with bag nets, set trap nets and a bit of freshwater species as well. Bag nets are basically harakeke woven against some circular hoops and rely on bait to attract fish, rather than channels and beaters like the scoop nets. I should probably be a bit more specific about what these nets actually looked like, because it was kind of integral to how they worked. If you imagine two or three wooden rings that were between half a metre to a metre apart, and between each ring was the harakeke netting itself, with the last ring having a space where the net is tied off. So, it's kind of like a short, fat tube that would basically sit vertically in the water, or more specifically, laid flat on the sea floor so that the three rings touched each other. When the fish were seen to be above the net, or the fisherman felt the fish nudge it, they would draw the net up, extending it vertically, and catching the fish. This worked doubly well because Māori knew that startled fish often dive to get away from danger, which in this case would get them right into the net. Like scoop nets, the bag nets could be split into three categories based on the species they targeted. Crayfish, tānahangaha, banded wrasse, and māumau. Crayfish were plentiful along the east coast of the North Island and the Bay of Plenty, and there were four methods used to catch them, the most common of which is still in use today. Diving, whereby the fisher dives down to find the crayfish, grabs it and brings it back up. Sometimes the most simple methods are the most effective. Another was to use a matere, a rod with strands of harakeke looped over one end with some pawa acting as a bait within the flax. The rod was thrust into rock crevices and the crayfish, being big fans of all sorts of shellfish, tried to get the piece of power. However, they would end up getting their legs tangled in the flax, which the fishermen would feel and be able to pull the cray up. The third method is by baited crayfish pots called taruke made of manuka rods. They are set on the sea floor with a long rope with wooden flats to mark the spot. These would be returned to later on and pulled up, hopefully with some craze inside them. The fourth method is where the bag net would come in, called a poraka. Interestingly, this name is used a bit differently depending on the region. For example, it means a bag net for crayfish in the east coast and Bay of Plenty, but in Taupo, poraka means a set trap used to catch kokapu. Again, pawa would normally be used to catch crayfish in the bag net with sinkers in it, sometimes being set in shallow water at night. If the line was held, the fishermen will be able to feel when the pawa was being nibbled on, so they would know when to pull the net up to catch them. But it was common for lots of nets to be set and tied to rocks or other prominent features. Once all the nets were set, he would double back to the first one and pull it up with whatever was in it, if anything. By the time he got through them all, it'd be time to go back and check the first one. So, you could either have one net with more precise catching, or many nets with a bit less discretion. During the day, they would be set in deeper water with the use of a mokihi, 
raft made of hoama, an endemic tree. Again, the nets would be dropped in the water with wooden floaters to mark their spot, and the fishermen would do essentially the same thing, paddling around to each net and pulling it up before repeating the process. When the crayfish were particularly abundant, a net could hold up to 12 crays. Crayfish were caught year-round, being at their best around September-October, but mostly in September when the corfi was in bloom. Though, I think this may have been just an indicator rather than having an actual influence on the crays themselves. In saying that, more often they would be caught in October, after the bloom, when they were molting. This was called a monu, which means to loosen or cast off. It's also the same term used to refer to bird molts, and a parera monu is a molting grey duck. It can also mean a person who can't swim, since ducks can't go in the water when they are molting. Softshell crayfish were the most highly prized of the crays, as this is when they were at their fattest, which makes sense given that this was the reason they were molting in the first place. As a quick fun fact, it is illegal to pull up softshell crayfish in modern day New Zealand. This is because they've been overfished and all that sort of stuff. In addition to their size, this made crays easier to catch, as they would tend to hang out in holes in the rocks to avoid predators having a go at them meaning they weren't just roaming around. These holes were called ruamonu or ruakoura, shell-shedding holes or crayfish holes. These holes were well known and sometimes named due to their importance. Names were also given to the different sizes of crayfish, potentially to distinguish the ones best for eating. Diving for crayfish was by far the most popular method, even today. When diving, a basket would be tied around the waist, called a kafiu, which would also be used when gathering shellfish. The diver would feel around in the crevices of rocks with her foot, unless the water was shallow, in which case she'd just get her arm in there. On the flip side, if it was deep, the diver would go down head first. Once a cray was found, it would be grabbed by the back and turned upside down to render it harmless, which is basically how it is done today. Sometimes the cray would be grabbed by the leg on accident, causing it to break off. If this happened, then the leg would be removed from the site, otherwise the cray wouldn't use that hole again. It's unclear whether this was something based on observations or something more spiritual, though they were often one and the same. When the diver was ready to come up, she would often have filled her basket, having one cray in each hand and one in her mouth, which I think is pretty badass. However, Hiroa says of his time, quote, In these degenerate days, an old sock is often used as a glove to protect the hand from the sharp spines. End quote. Interestingly, the job of gathering crays was given to the women rather than to the men, perhaps due to the crayfish being seen in a similar vein to that of shellfish. Let's talk about Maumau which are a deep sea fish that travel in shoals, frequenting various areas based on the season, with the fishing season beginning at the end of January and going until early April. These guys were caught with a large bag net from a waka, called a matarau by Nati Paro. Mata meaning mesh, and ro meaning many. Whereas Te Aapanui and Natiawa called it a wahanui, large mouth. When the fishing ground was reached, four lines would be baited with crayfish tails, which Hiroa states was the quote-unquote proper bait. 
The lines would be baited with so much crayfish, it would take, quote, a sec and a half of crayfish to completely bait the lines, end quote. Which, as someone who loves to eat crayfish, it just really hurts me in my soul to see them used for bait. The net would be put over the side with a line attached to a rod, so as to bring it back up. More crayfish would also be thrown overboard to attract the fish, along with the lines that had already been set above the net. When the mau did come, they would swim close to the surface, stirring up the water with their tails and fins as they fed, the net about a metre below them. When there was a good amount of fish above the net, it would be raised, causing the mau to panic and swim down into the net. The net would then actually be lowered again rather than taking it out to get the catch to allow more fish to come and then raised up again until the net was filled. The fish would then be brought up and tipped into the waka. This was actually a very good method, capable of catching many fish, anywhere between 700 to 2,000 in one outing. Any less than that was apparently considered a poor catch. A cool little fact about bag nets in general is how they were stored when they weren't being used. The two hoops that made them up were turned over each other in a figure eight to make it occupy less space. Kind of like how you loop a rubber band over your finger or do up a hair tie. Let's move on to nets that required a bit less direct interaction and management with that of set trap nets. You can kind of think of it like a scale where scoop nets required the most handling and set trap nets required the least, with bag nets sitting somewhere in the middle. Set nets were, as the name might imply, set in a position and relied more on currents, tides and humans to get fish into them, rather than a deliberate action from a person holding it. They also differ from bag nets in that they are unbaited. Ngāti Paro and Whānau Apanui had four types of these nets, three for freshwater and one for marine. The one used for marine fish is the seventh method to catch kehe that we didn't talk about last episode. So, let's start there. This method of catching kehe was called huwa by Whānau Apanui, which that word interestingly seems to be associated with disability. Ngāti Paro, on the other hand, called them hinaki kehe, Previously, we have said that hinaki referred specifically to eel traps, but it looks like it may have been used to mean all horizontal traps in some cases. To use this kind of net, a place was selected that had a lower water level and where there was a lot of seaweed. The area was cleared to fit the net and stones arranged to form a channel towards the net. Sticks would be attached to the net and stones placed on top of the ends to keep the net down in the water and ensure it didn't float away, given no one would be holding on to it. The narrower end of the net would also have stones laid on top to help with this, along with ropes attached from the front to the rocks on the back, keeping the net in place even when the tide rose and fell. The net would also be placed facing towards the shore, the catching being made at low tide when the fish had less options on where they could go. Fish returning to sea as the current heads out would go down the channel and accidentally get into the funnel-shaped net and be unable to get out, due to the way the net was designed with smaller holes slash funnels. Other fish, such as snapper and moki, are also caught like this. Sometimes a shark would get into the net and knock it around a bit, 
or shags would dive down to get at the fish in the net. However, they would drown if they did manage to make it in, as they usually weren't able to figure out how to get out again. Once the tide had fully gone out, the net and whatever was inside it would be retrieved. We haven't talked about freshwater all that much so far, but there were three types of set traps that were used to catch fish, as well as one scoop net that had a very fine mesh to catch whitebait. One of the species caught with set nets was Upokororo, the New Zealand grayling. At the time, there was loads of them in rivers and streams, travelling in shoals with the nets being set in rapids to catch them. This net was similar to a scoop net, but with a shorter handle that was used to secure the net in place, rather than someone holding it. As I said, the net would be placed in shallow, fast-moving rapids. But first, you had to know where the upokororo were hanging out. Typically, they would hang out in deep pools during the day, and come out at night to feed on algae growing on the rocks. The algae being eaten down, or even the bite marks on the rocks, were the signs that Māori were looking for to locate where the graylings were hanging out, and where to put the net. When a set of rapids was chosen, the net would be placed in them with a set of stones arranged in a V-shape leading towards the net. These were designed to guide the fish towards the net, so the channel didn't need to be totally blocked off, just enough to get them to follow along as well as gently direct the current, something else that these fish would be acutely attuned to. Once the net was in place, beaters armed with ropoto, leafy branches of ferns, would go upstream to the pools where the graylings were resting and push them towards the net. They did this by thrusting their branches down to startle the fish as they swam in the deep pools. They would continue to follow them into the shallow water and then into the rapids until they ended up in the net. Sometimes a fish would take their chances with the beaters and head back towards them, but if this happened, they would often be killed by the beaters. Like some of the other nets we have talked about, if the shoal was particularly big, some of the upokororo would be allowed to escape to ensure the net didn't get too full and break. After Europeans arrived, the beaters would sometimes be on horseback, foregoing the ferns and just canaring down the stream to scare the fish. Obviously, this method required appropriate terrain for this to occur, so it wasn't super widespread. Another method of catching graylings was to leave the net overnight, and some fish would just be swept in by the current because they got too complacent and end up in the net. The season for these fish was in March and April, when the algae they feed on would be in bloom. Upokororo are actually a bit interesting in their own right, not just in how they were caught. As I mentioned before, they were extremely abundant during the pre-European era, but at some point in the 19th century, they were being caught and thrown onto gardens as fertiliser. Well, perhaps not unprocessed, I don't think they were just throwing the whole fish into the fields, but they were used for fertiliser nonetheless. Despite this, we do know that in the middle of that century, the species was still majorly abundant. In 1869, a water wheel apparently came to a standstill due to the amount of graylings in the river. However, by the early 20th century, their population had been drastically reduced, with the last catch being recorded in the early 1920s. It wasn't until later, in 1953, that they were formally declared extinct. And it wasn't until after that 
that they were given protection under New Zealand law, which was too little too late. To this day, or rather should I say at time of recording, it is New Zealand's only known native freshwater fish to go extinct. For quite some time, we didn't understand what caused this decline. It was thought that it was a combination of habitat degradation and poorer water quality due to human activities, which usually means farming and urbanisation, as well as the introduction of trout, which predate and outcompete some native species. It wasn't until 2019 that Professor George Perry and his PhD candidate, Finn Lee, discovered that it was a bit more complicated than that. I won't get too much into the nitty gritty because scientific papers can be a bit difficult to understand, but the basic idea is that the Upokororo life cycle was to spawn in rivers before going out to sea and then return to the rivers to spawn again. However, unlike other fish species that do this, graylings don't return to the exact same river that they were born in. This is important because obviously the rivers that they were born in were good enough for them to be born in. But if you don't go back to that exact same river, they could end up in a different one, which could be severely degraded, have crap water quality, or have a large amount of trout in it. This essentially created a population sink, whereby some of the population was constantly removed every year from being unable to spawn, or the spawn dying before they could reach the sea. The ones that did spawn didn't do so at a high enough rate, and as such, the species eventually went extinct. So although the degradation, water quality and trout were part of the story, it was the dispersal strategy of the Upokororo that really was the nail in the coffin. It's a great piece of work that helps us understand how freshwater species could go extinct in the future, and as such helps us plan for their conservation. I'd also like to thank Professor Perry for being so kind as to actually send me the paper, which was really, really awesome. For the final net we will talk about today, we'll be going back to the Moana. The baited trap net only has one example of it ever found, but it was apparently different enough to the bag nets and set trap nets that it warranted its own category. They were called torehe or toemi, and were circular nets with a sinker at the bottom that were kept flat by radials made of supplejack, and could be closed by putting a line around it and giving it a tug. It kind of looked like a bit of an oval that snaps shut by folding in half. The bait would be tied to a cross piece in the middle of the trap, which would usually be crayfish tails. When in use, the net would be lowered from a waka, either amongst rocks or just laid flat on the water to sink to the bottom. This would be done quite carefully so as to not have the line pulled on too hard and making the trap shut. The trap wasn't set under tension, meaning they wouldn't need to bring it up and reset it if this did happen, but of course you want to make sure it reaches the bottom still open as best you can, to give you the best chance of catching something. Once in position, the line would be drawn until it was taut, again not enough to cause the trap to snap shut. Once a fish could be felt nibbling on the bait through the line, it would be given a big tug to close the trap around it making the radials touch in that now half oval, the action being aided by the counterweight of the sinker. Now that the fish was caught, the line would be pulled up as quickly as possible, making sure it didn't slacken on the way. 
Again, the trap wasn't under tension, so it was possible that if force wasn't applied through the line to keep it shut, it would just lazily open and allow the fish to escape. When a fish was caught, it would usually be when it had its head down into the bait, so the tail would be the first thing popping out of the water with the scales caught on the net itself. Once the net was in the waka, the line would be slackened to allow the trap to open and the fish would come flopping out, at which point the trap could then be reset. One cool thing about this is that if you were quite skilled or quite lucky, it apparently was possible to catch two or more fish at once. The sorts of fish that were being caught this way were species like moki, tamari, leather jackets and butterfish. As the traps were used more and more, it was common for the supplejack radials to become weak and lose some of their spring, meaning the trap would lose its form a little bit. These were easily replaced though. Hiroa makes an interesting comment that this type of net would be very useful to naturalists trying to catch specimens for smaller marine fish, possibly because it kept them quite intact and it meant that the fishermen could be rather selective in what kind of fish they wanted to catch. He also says that this kind of trap was quite easy to make and use, so it was a great net for anyone who was fishing for fun, such as, quote, women, children, or indifferent fishermen, end quote. Overall, it should be noted that the nets we have talked about aren't the be-all and end-all of Māori nets. In fact, most of this information was gathered from the east coast of the North Island, from Ngāti Parau and neighbouring iwi, such as Te Whānau a Apanui. This was done by Alston Best, Tarangi Hiroa and a few others, at the behest of Aperana Nata, a famous Māori politician, in 1923. It does give a good idea of what Māori were using when it comes to fishing, but I just don't want to give you the idea that this was all there is to it. Next time, we will talk about fishing in freshwater rather than in the big wide moana. Within that, we will discuss mātauranga Māori, how fish were named and identified, and how species like eels, whitebait and lampreys were caught. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>